we are in the middle of a series called Presence. Presence. And we're talking about the presence of God in our lives and in the world. Now, the irony is that today we're not so much going to be talking about presence as we're going to be talking about absence. Our focus is going to be absence. That's because no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how mature you are in the faith, no matter how well even you know the scriptures, there are going to be times in your life where God feels distant, in which you wonder, is he there? Why don't I sense him the way that I did last week? Last week, I had this mountaintop experience and there was like thunder and lightning and, you know, earthquakes. And then today I feel all alone. You might even start to ask yourself, does God take days off? I know he rested on the seventh day. Does he rest every seventh day? What does this mean? And why is it that sometimes I can sense God? It's so tangible. It's so real. It is so here and present. And then other times it just feels like it's not. So um, what I want you guys to know, uh, walk away knowing this morning is that how you and I respond when God feels distant actually reveals an awful lot about our relationship with him. How you respond, how I respond when God feels absent has a lot to say about our relationship with him. And it also reveals a whole lot about our own issues and insecurities as individuals. So I think this is going to be an incredibly helpful message for some of you. And uh, part of the reason I'm so excited about it is because it is a continuation of the story that we started last week. If you weren't here, that's okay. I'm going to get you caught up. We read this story last week about how the ancient Israelites had been slaves in the country of Egypt. And God raised up a man named Moses, and God used Moses to deliver the Israelites out of slavery. And so they flee the country, and they have this miraculous parting of the Red Sea, and they're able to cross on dry ground. And God leads them to a place in the desert called Sinai. There's a big mountain that's there. And we read last week about how God manifests his presence in visible ways at Sinai. And in fact, the way that God reveals himself is so great, so glorious, that the Israelites are actually like, ooh. And they tell Moses, Moses, we don't actually want to be directly in God's presence because he seems too big and too scary. So tell you what, Moses, why don't you talk to God for us. Every day, go up the mountain, have a convo, a chat with God, then come back down and tell us what he says. Sound good? And Moses is like, I guess. So every day, Moses trudges himself up the top of the mountain. My guess is that Moses was in amazing shape, you guys, because that is a lot of cardio. Can you imagine climbing Hauling Peak every single day and then coming back down? Moses probably had a beach body, you know? which is ironic because he was in the desert. There was no beach anywhere around. Nobody could see it or appreciate it. Every day, Moses climbed this mountain and had a conversation with God. Now, we're going to pick up the story in which one day Moses goes up the mountain and he doesn't come back. He normally comes down at a particular time in the afternoon and he doesn't show up when the Israelites are expecting him. And time goes on, and the day gets later and later, and eventually the Israelites, the Israelites start thinking, uh-oh, something has happened. Moses did something wrong. God is angry. He has left. Moses is dead. Who even knows what's going on here? And so they start to, to speak and to plan as if Moses is never coming back. So here's where we pick up the story, Exodus 32, verses 1 to 4. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Now, 
If you're unfamiliar with who Aaron is, because we haven't actually talked about him much in this series yet, Aaron is Moses' second in command, okay? He's like the VP. He's the second guy in charge, and he stayed down at the camp while Moses would go up and meet with God. So when Moses takes a long time to come back, they gather around Aaron. Come on, the people said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So Aaron said, what the heck are you guys talking about? How stupid can you be? What do you mean you want me to fashion new gods for you? You already have a God. He's the God who set you free. He's the God who delivered you at the Red Sea. Why in the world would you ever want me to make false gods for you? Shut your stupid sinful mouths, people. Well, that's what he should have said, but he doesn't. The people say, make some gods, some new gods who can lead us. So Aaron said, okay, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down and molded it or fashioned it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, oh, Israel, these are the gods who have brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is a pretty shocking turn of events, you guys. After everything the Israelites had seen and experienced in the last 90 days, do you realize this? It has only been 90 days since they left Egypt, and God has done all of these different miracles for them. In fact, I want you to think about all those different miracles for just a moment. Of course, God sent all these plagues into Egypt. Let me tell you, the plagues were not just like minor inconveniences, okay? These were massive disruptions to the entire country. So there was darkness over the land for several days, kind of like the smoke blocking out the sun today, but much, much worse. There were frogs that completely took over. There were um, swarms of flies. It sounds a little bit like Calgary, if I'm going to be honest with you right now. Like it was a really, really wild situation. They saw God show up miraculously. They were delivered from Egypt. They were set free. They crossed over the Red Sea. They get into the desert. And of course, like they have to keep going because they don't know if the army is still pursuing them hot on their heels. So they can't break. They, They can't take a break and make camp. They have to keep going day and night. They have to keep marching to put distance between them and the Egyptians. The problem is it's really hard to navigate in the desert at night. And so they're like, which way do we go? This way, that way. And God says, I got you. And so the Bible says he manifests his presence as a pillar of fire that they could follow. And this was not just like a little, you know, six foot tall pillar of fire. This was like the size of the Calgary tower in the distance. And all they had to do was find that pillar of fire on the horizon and they walked towards it and God led them where they needed to go. Of course, they're out in the desert and people get hungry, right? And they're like, we're starving, Moses. Where's the food? Feed us. And God says, I'll take care of them. And so he provides manna for them every single morning. You say, what is manna? Manna sounds amazing, you guys. I'm not going to lie. If you don't know what manna is, it's basically like a heavenly graham cracker. Every single morning, the Israelites would wake up and there would be like this manna bread cracker out on the ground. And they're like, whoop, five second rule. And they would grab it and they would eat it. And God miraculously provided food for them. Then people are like, man, I'm tired of eating graham crackers. What's up? We need some new food, God. And God said, okay, what do you want? And they said, we want meat. And God said, okay, I'll give you some meat. And so he sends quail. And every day they're able to eat all the quail that they want. He provides a big poultry buffet for them every single day, right? We find that they get uh, water miraculously in the desert when they're thirsty. And then we get to Sinai and God manifests his presence in all these ways that we've already mentioned. God has done these incredible miracles for them over the past 90 days. But in a day, in the space of an instant, it's gone. They've forgotten all of it. And they're wanting to turn a different direction. Why? 
Well, one, because Moses was late, okay? I don't know if any of you guys are the type of people that the moment somebody's late, your mind automatically goes to the worst case scenario. Anybody like that? It's like your hubs is four minutes late coming home and you're already picturing his car flipped over on the side of the highway. You're like, oh, it's all over. No, he's just running late. People, Moses, calm down. He's just a little bit late. Everything's gonna be okay. But they are going like worst case scenario. This is the worst thing that ever could have happened. So they're not responding this way. They're not turning away from their God simply because Moses is late. There's, there is something a little more deeper uh, happening here. Okay, catch this. Up until this point, the Israelites have only ever had a relationship with God through Moses. He has been the intermediary, the go-between. Remember, remember, they said, we don't want to talk to God. You talk to God for us. So when Moses disappears, for them, it's the same as God disappearing. When Moses is late, they think God is late. When it seems like Moses has died or gone away, they think God must have died or gone away. And so in this moment, they start freaking out. And instead of like turning to God, they turn away from him. Because Moses is gone, they assume God is gone. Now, um, I don't have a lot of time to spend on this, but I just, I, I don't know, guys. I really feel like the Holy Spirit is, is telling me to call out some of you, honestly. Because there are many of you, and you're not so different from the Israelites. You have a relationship with God, but it is mediated by someone else. My friends, if the only time that you ever connect with God is when the band is on stage singing, if that is the only transcendence you experience, if that is the only time you can actually worship, something is wrong. Because that means the vast majority of the week, you can't have a relationship with God. If I'm the only person that is helping you to grow in your relationship with God and it only happens for 35 minutes on Sunday morning, something is off. You cannot delegate responsibility for your relationship with God. That's what the Israelites did, and that's what many people do today. Hey, there are some men in our church, and the only relationship you have with God is through your wives. If she didn't drag your butt out of bed every morning to church, you wouldn't be here. And I'm glad you're here. And I'm glad you're willing to even follow your wife's leadership. But listen, whoever you are, whatever your circumstances are, you cannot delegate responsibility for your relationship with God. You and you alone are responsible. You can go directly to God. God wants to speak directly to you, just like he did with the Israelites here. So here's what happens. Moses is gone. People start freaking out. And so they gather together all the gold in the camp. The men take off their gold wedding rings. The women take out their earrings. The rappers pull the grills out of their mouth. The rodeo guys take off their belt buckles and chuck them into the fire, you know. And the Bible tells us that Aaron takes all of that gold and he fashions it into a large statue in the shape of a calf, or more accurately, it was a young bull, all right? This is young bull. Now, before we talk about why they were doing this, what is the point in all of this, and why would they choose to do this, there are probably a couple of questions that pop into your mind. One, you might be asking, where did all the gold come from that they used to fashion this calf? I mean, you just told us, Dan, that these were slaves, right? And they had just been set free like 90 days ago, so they must have been poor. Where in the world did they get all of this gold for? Now, we didn't read the story, but if you were to go back to Exodus chapter number 12, there's this uh, instance in which the Israelites, just before they leave Egypt, they're on their way out the door, and the Egyptians are so ready for them to be gone. They're like, Get out of our country, take your plagues with you, take your God and be gone. And so they actually give the Israelites 
a lot of gold and jewels and precious, valuable things as a way to say like, whoop, out the door you go. Okay, that was God making that happen, working through the Egyptians to provide for the uh, physical needs of his people. Okay, this is the gold that they used to melt down and to make a false god to worship instead of Yahweh. Yahweh had given them this gold as essentially a wedding gift, and then they used it to build a false idol. I was listening to a, a message that a pastor named J.D. Greer preached on this passage, and he said, can you imagine what an insult this must have been to Yahweh? This would be the equivalent of your wife pawning her wedding ring so she can pay for a motel for her and her husband. Oh, that's wrong. That's dirty. How would anybody ever do that? And yet, this is essentially what the Israelites are doing in this situation. So where did the gold come from? God had given it to them as like this blessing, and instead, it's going to become a curse to them. And then second, what's the deal with the cow? Like, why did they make a cow of all the things that they could have made? Why didn't they make an eagle or a trout or like a Frenchie or something? Like, of all the animals, why would they choose the cow? Well, it's important to remember that the Israelites had just come out of Egypt, okay? And in Egypt, there was a pantheon of gods. There were all these different gods that were there. And at that particular dynasty and time and location, one of the most popular gods that the Egyptians worshipped was a god named Apis, and he was the bull deity. I think we've got a picture here on the screen for you. This is actually a photo of an ancient idol that they recovered, archaeologists recovered from Egypt. So I want you to catch this now, okay? When the Israelites make the golden calf, they are not creating some random cow. They are recreating a God from their past. They are recreating a God that they used to worship before they turned to Yahweh. Now, look, I'm not going to excuse what the Israelites did here because this was pretty messed up and God gets pretty angry at them, no lie, deservedly so. But I might be able to explain to you what's going on in their minds, why they would turn their back on the God who had just delivered them like this. I want you to imagine, put yourself in their shoes essentially, okay? So yes, God has set you free and that's awesome. But you know what? You've been a slave for generations. This is all you've ever known. And so while you're free, this is a totally new life. And you don't know exactly what it's going to be like. And God has promised that he's going to give you this land. The problem is God never tells them where the land is. They can't find it on a map. The average person in the Israelite family has no clue where they're headed or how long it's going to take to get there. It's all kind of a blur to them. They're just walking by faith. Then the guy who has been leading them, mediating between them and God, he's gone up the mountain and it looks like the, the cloud of smoke has completely swallowed them, swallowed him. So in that moment, they feel abandoned, scared, hopeless. Are they still going to get to go to the promised land now that Moses is gone? Will God let them possess it even if they can find it? This, in this moment, with all of this going on in their minds, this is when they decide to create this little golden bull and to worship it, Okay. So what we learn from them, and I really want you guys to understand this. This is kind of the big thing that I want you to see this morning. What we learn from the Israelites is that in times of stress and fear and anxiety, we return to the gods we are most familiar with. In times of stress in your life, you will return to the old things that brought you comfort 
or value or meaning or purpose. Again and again and again, we see this in the scripture, we see it in our hearts as well. Or maybe I could put it like this. When the big G God feels absent, you will try to fill that void by some little G God. You'll try to fill that perceived void with something, some kind of presence that helps you in your times of need. Now, there's a theological word for this, and it's called idolatry, idolatry. And it's literally the worship of something that is not God. It's taking something that's not God and treating it as if it were God. Idols are the things that we look to to give us our sense of security, our value, our purpose in life. They're the things that give us comfort and hope. And listen to me, every person has idols. I have idols. You have idols. Everybody out there has idols. And when life gets hard and we're not sure where to go and what's happening and where is God and why does he seem so distant, there is just this natural inclination for some reason for us to turn back to the gods of our old life, the things we used to rely on to help us feel comforted or to give us that sense of direction and purpose. These are not always um, explicitly religious things, okay? Usually for you and I, they are more subtle than forming a golden calf. Not most of you are doing that, but you know, sometimes it is explicitly religious. Some of you, you know exactly what your idols are. As soon as I talk about this, you're like, oh geez, man. Yep, here we go. I know what he's talking about. I know what they are in my life and many of you do as well. If you don't know what the idols are, those things that are not God that you treat like they are God, okay? I'm gonna, I'm gonna put a few questions, kind of some things you can ask yourself here on the screen and uh, this might help you identify some of your idols. Now, please understand, you don't have to answer these out loud. I'm never gonna make you turn to your neighbor and be like, well, my idol is, okay? Because she might be in the room. Anyway, um, <laughs> identifying your idols, Ask yourself, what do I turn to in times of stress? When I'm really stressed out, when life is not going the way I expect, when I have no idea what to do, what are the things that I turn to to give myself comfort or escape? For some of you, it's alcohol. For some of you, it's drugs. Could be porn, might be Netflix, could be binge eating, might be workaholism. But there is something that most of us will turn to when we get really stressed out because it gives us a sense of control or it gives us a sense of comfort and it makes us feel like everything's gonna be okay. What do I turn to in times of stress? The second question is, what brings out the worst in you? What brings out the worst in you? What causes you to lose your temper or for your anxiety to skyrocket? It might be a low bank balance. That might be what it is for some of you. It could be that people are unhappy with you. The moment somebody expresses any displeasure with you, your little heart can't take it. And so you feel so awful about yourself and about life. And you're like, oh my gosh. For some of you, it's, uh, you know, someone disrespecting you. That's the thing, like, oh, you want to disrespect me? Meet me in the parking lot, bro. We'll settle this thing, okay? It might be that. It could also be somebody else's success. That brings out the worst in you. Maybe a business rival is getting ahead and just eats away at you. Or you've got a family member, and life is going so well for them and not so well for you, and so that just brings out the worst. I'm not saying you like that part of you, but you know that is what happens to you, and it brings out the worst in you. Okay, third question, where does your mind go when you dream or daydream? Where does your mind go when you dream or daydream? Again, we're trying to identify idols. What are the things that are competing for God's place in our life? 
Where does my mind go when I daydream? Uh, for many of us, it's career advancement, right? It's just like I'm, I'm dreaming and scheming about getting a promotion. I want to be CEO. One day I'm going to run this joint. And that is where your mind always go. First thing, top of the mind. It could be, uh, you know, getting money or moving to a new house. You may dream and daydream about finding a spouse. You may dream and daydream about finding a new spouse. You chuckle because you know it happens. You might dream about getting even with somebody that's wronged you. This question can help reveal what is really important to you. And then the final one is what do you spend your money on? What do you spend your money on? Like a river flows to the ocean, I promise you, your money will flow towards the thing that you love the most. If you examine your finances, whatever you end up spending the most on or the most of your discretionary income on, that will be the thing that reveals where your heart and affections are. Jesus said that, where your heart or where your money is, your heart is, okay? So these questions, again, they are designed to help you identify the things that are competing for God's place in your life. Those idols, those things that you're treating like God, but they are really not. Now, listen to me, please. It it is so important that you note that none of the things that I've mentioned so far are necessarily idols in and of themselves, okay? No more so than a bull is a god until you worship it. See, the moment you worship the bull, it stops being a bull and it starts being a god. There is nothing wrong with wanting to be CEO. There's nothing wrong with wanting to live in a nice house. There's nothing wrong with wanting to have a spouse. But the moment you start worshiping those things, the moment that becomes most important to you, The moment you turn to that to give you your sense of value and comfort and meaning and purpose in life, then it has become an idol, and it's something that needs to be addressed. The irony, of course, for the Israelites is that the god Apis had done nothing for them. The god Apis did not set them free from slavery. The god Apis had nothing to do with parting the Red Sea. Apis did not feed them when they were hungry. He didn't provide water to them when they were dying of thirst in the desert. Apis didn't meet with them and speak with them and promise that he was going to give them a hope and a future. It was Yahweh and Yahweh alone who did that. So the irony is they're turning from the God who is there and real and present and working, and they're turning to something that is not working. It was a God that could not be trusted. I wonder how many of your idols cannot be trusted. You couldn't actually rely on them. You're relying on your investment portfolio because that gives you confidence. Cool, bro. But what happens when the market crashes? You're relying on the fact that you're still a size four after all of these years. So you can make sure that your husband is going to, you know, he's, he's never going to stray. Listen, husbands cheat on hot wives too, guys. You can't trust in that sort of thing. It happens. Your addiction makes you feel better tonight, but it makes you feel worse tomorrow. We don't return to our idols because they work. We return to them because they're familiar. That's it. We don't return to them because they work. We return to them because they are familiar. And there are too many of us, and we are turning away from what works, the God who is real, who created you, who loves you, who works miracles on your behalf every single day. And by the way, he has worked the greatest miracle of all all in Jesus. He's demonstrated his love for you again and again and again. And we turn away from what works to what's comfortable, to what's familiar 
to what's easy, to what we used to rely on before we gave ourselves to God. The idols in our lives will never replace God because they cannot replicate God. So we have to quit trying to get from them what we can only get from him. Okay, verse number five. Aaron saw how excited the people were. So he built an altar in front of the calf. Then he announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. And after this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry, the scripture says. Now, I want you to notice what Aaron does here, because this is really important. It's easy to kind of miss this, okay? He builds an altar. Understand that building an altar was actually an act of worship to the true God. It is. The the Israelites had done this throughout the Old Testament, throughout Genesis, the early parts of Exodus. They had built altars to Yahweh. So this was a valid way to worship him. Aaron says, we're going to throw a festival in the name of the Lord. In the Hebrew, it literally says, in the name of Yahweh. The scripture says here that the people sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. Again, this is all like a part of their normal worship of their true heavenly father. But they add to it, a golden calf, and some pagan revelry, okay? What I want you to understand here is that the people are not trying to replace Yahweh. They're just trying to supplement him. They're trying to add in a little something else that will maybe give them some comfort or some peace. Maybe God needs a little bit of help from one of these other old Egyptian gods. I don't know. They're not trying to replace him. They're not like turning their back forever on Yahweh. They're trying to include Yahweh and these old and other gods in their worship. The principle for me and you, particularly for those of us that are Christians, is that typically we're not going to try to replace God. We're going to try to supplement him. It's unlikely that any of you that have been a Christian for any length of time, but particularly a long length of time, it's unlikely that God's not going to come through. He's going to seem absent to you, and suddenly you're going to be like, well, I guess I'm an atheist now. That's not how it works. Instead, what we do is we try to supplement our worship of the true God by bringing in worship of false gods. Why? I don't know. Maybe because it's comfortable and it's what we used to lean on. Maybe we think subconsciously God just needs a little bit of help. We'll just lend him a hand, all right? I don't know why it is, but we tend to do this. And this is more subtle, but it's just as dangerous. It it doesn't matter if the Israelites were fully trying to replace God or if they were just trying to supplement him. In the end, they are robbing God of the glory and the worship that he alone deserves, okay? They are giving their worship allegiance to someone or something other than him. So I'm going to give you a few examples of the way that this might work out in the lives of a Christian. And I got to tell you, I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes here. So I don't know your situation. And like, if if I say something and you're like, is he talking about me? Because that applies to me. I don't know you, okay? We try to supplement our worship of God with other things. So this is a little bit like the Christian that has a Buddha statue in their house because they believe the statue of Buddha is a symbol of blessing and peace and prosperity. I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I'm just saying I see it all the time. And if I'm going to be real frank with you, there is not that much difference between the statue of Buddha and the golden calf that the Israelites made here in Exodus 32. It is competing and trying to get from something else what we should get from God. Listen, God is the Prince of Peace. God is the one who will bring stability and comfort and hope to your life. God is the source of all prosperity, not a statue. 
This is the religious person that says, I love Jesus. I, I, I just love Jesus so much. And I keep the Old Testament law just in case, you know? Like, I don't want God to be like, bro, you, you ignored half the Bible here. What's wrong with you? So they decide they're gonna do it all. No, Jesus came and he died freely. It is by grace we have been saved. It is not of our works so that no one can boast. It doesn't matter if you kept every one of the 600 some odd laws in the Old Testament, it wouldn't be enough. It is Jesus and Jesus alone that saves you. But there are too many Christians that are like, no, it's Jesus and my own righteousness. This is the the business person that adds Jesus to her self-development plan. It's like, you know, I'm trying to get ahead. I'm trying to make money. I'm trying to get a title, whatever it might be. And Jesus could probably help me get where I want to go in life. And so I want to add him so that he will bless me. And frankly, in that case, Jesus is no more than that Buddha statue we were talking about a moment ago to you, okay? We are called to completely and fully submit and surrender our lives to Jesus, not simply tack him on to whatever our plans might be. Hey, these are the Christians that want to leverage the power of the political state to accomplish what they think God's agenda is. They want to supplement. They think God needs some help. God can't do it without the prime minister on his side. We as Christians have bought into the idea that God needs help. He needs our help. No, he doesn't. We talked last week about how great and powerful our God is. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need your idols. And he is not going to tolerate any competition in my life for his glory. I remember a couple of years ago, we had a a lady at Connect who gave her heart to Jesus. And she was coming out of the New Age movement in Calgary. New Age, kind of occult practices and things. She was deep in it. I mean, deep in it, all right? And she gave her heart to Jesus. She got sold out for God. And one day she came to us and she said, hey, uh, Dan, Amber, I have like thousands of dollars worth of crystals and books and cards and like flags, and I don't even know what all she had. I mean, it was a lot. And she was like, I have spent a small fortune in my life accumulating all of these things. And she said, I don't know what I should do with this stuff now. Like, is it okay if I keep it? Or should I just throw it out? Maybe, maybe I should sell it and then give the money to the church. What do you guys think we should do? And we gave her our kind of best thoughts, but we said, hey, listen, ultimately this is between you and God. We want you to pray about it, listen to what the Spirit says, and then do it. She came back a couple of weeks later and she said, you know what? I prayed about it and here's what I've decided. I'm gonna throw it all in the trash. She did. She threw every bit of it away. And when we said, why did you do that? She said, well, a couple of things. One is like, if I keep it in my house then at some point, I might be tempted to go back to it. To go back to those things, those former gods that used to give her comfort and peace and meaning and joy and purpose. And she said, although I kind of like the idea of like selling it and giving the money to the church, but if I sell it on Kijiji or I donate it to uh, Goodwill or something like that, somebody else is gonna pick it up and it's gonna become an idol in their life and it's gonna pull them further away from God instead of drawing them closer. She realized that God does not tolerate competition. He really doesn't. He wants our full devotion and worship. And so she was willing to do the hard thing to make that happen. She was in our first service this morning. And man, I'm just so proud of people like her who can do the hard thing, who could say, no, I'm all in with Jesus. 
I don't need the stuff that used to give me value and purpose and meaning and all that sort of stuff because now I find it from a better source than I ever did before. Okay, we're going to start wrapping this up. I'm preaching a little bit longer, not much, because the band is only doing three songs. So if you're like, why is he talking so long? Blame the band. All right, Matthew, uh, Matthew. Exodus chapter number 32. We're going to read verses 7 through 9. Moses is still up on the mountain. He has no clue what's happening down at base camp. The Lord told Moses, quick, go down the mountain. Your people whom you brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Notice here, now it's your people, Moses, the people you brought out. God, of course, was the one who brought them out. And of course, they were his people. But at this point, God is so ticked off at them. He's like, I don't even want to claim them. They're your people. Go deal with them. How quickly they've turned away from the way I commanded them to live. They have melted down gold and made a calf. They have bowed down and sacrificed to it. They are even saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Then the Lord said, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. If you jump into verse number 20, then Moses turned and went down the mountain. He held in his hands the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant. That's the Ten Commandments. He's literally carrying the Ten Commandments down to the Israelites here. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. These tablets were God's work. The words on them were written by God himself. Now, when Joshua, who was Moses' executive assistant, when Joshua heard the boisterous noise of the people shouting below, he exclaimed to Moses, oh my gosh, it sounds like there's a war in the camp. But Moses replied, no, it's not a shout of victory nor the wailing of defeat. I hear the sound of celebration. So when they came near to the camp, Moses saw the calf and the dancing, and the Bible says he burned with anger. He threw the stone tablets on the ground, smashing them at the foot of the mountain. Do you know that? The first set of the Ten Commandments that God ever delivered, Moses got ticked off, threw them on the ground, and busted them. It's true. Thankfully, God was gracious and like gave him another copy so he could go deliver them later, but it's true. I kind of feel like when Moses came back and he's like, all right, so God, what happened was, and God's like, I get it, dude. Here, here's the second set. <laughs> then he took the calf that the Israelites had made and he burned it. He ground it into powder, he threw it into the water, and he forced the people to drink it. I think at this point, the Israelites were wishing that Moses had just stayed missing, you know? Like he had just stayed gone. Because when he comes back, boy is ticked. He is furious with them. And again, rightfully so. So as a punishment, he takes all the gold, he melts it down, he grinds it into a powder, he throws it into the water, and he makes them drink it. That's weird. Why did Moses do that? There are a couple of reasons, and I think when we talk through them, you'll kind of understand the symbolism here. So the first thing is, after he grinds it into powder and they consume it, it's no longer available to them. This was intended to be a wedding gift from Yahweh to his people. It was supposed to be a source of blessing and security for them as they went into the promised land. But because they took a good thing and they turned it into an ultimate thing, God said, I'm gonna take it away completely. Can I tell you, God reserves the right to take away completely anything that competes for his glory. He doesn't always do it, but he reserves the right. He can do it, and in this case, he absolutely did. The Israelites were never going to be able to misuse this gold again. Now, the second reason, I think this is really cool symbolism here, is that, um, I don't know if you know this or not, but it's actually really bad for you to eat gold, okay? Uh, you can go to very fancy restaurants in the world and you can get hamburgers and they have gold leaf on top of them. They're very expensive. They cost like thousands of dollars just because of the gold leaf. And the gold leaf is safe to eat. However, if you eat enough gold, it is a heavy metal and it accumulates in your body and it can totally ruin your internal organs. It can throw off the chemistry of your body, all that sort of stuff. So I want you to watch this now. Gold is not bad in and of itself. 
when gold is in a wedding ring, when it's fashioned into a gold medal at the Olympics, when it's on a, you know, a, a conductor chip or something in a piece of electronics, gold can be a good thing. But when we turn a good thing into a God thing, it actually becomes toxic. When we take a good gift from God and we start to worship it, we internalize it, we ingest it, it becomes the center of us and our life revolves around this thing. Anything besides God, that turns toxic. So when Moses makes them drink the gold, he's saying to them, listen, you are ingesting poison every single day that you worship your idols instead of worshiping God. Oh, it's so, so good. The same is true for me and you. There is nothing wrong, you guys, with having a beach body. It's great. But listen now, if that's all you seek in life, or if that's what you believe gives you value and purpose, then you're going to end up disappointed because you will not always have a beach body. Have you ever seen those 70-year-old people that still have beach bodies? Weird. Weird. There's nothing inherently bad about becoming a CEO, but listen, you cannot let your title become the most important thing about you. The most important thing about you has always got to be that you are a child of the creator, that you have a relationship with him, and that when everything else fails, he is still there. All right, last set of verses. And frankly, I don't even have to read this passage. I just like it so much that I'm going to. Finally, Moses turned to Aaron and demanded, what did these people do to you to make you bring such a terrible sin upon them? Did they threaten your life, Aaron? Did they tie you up? Did they bribe you with some of the gold? What in the world would possess you to do this? Don't get so upset, my Lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know how evil these people are. They said to me, make us gods who will lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. It's their fault. God's not my fault. Come on, Moses, it's their fault. So I told them, whoever has gold jewelry, take it off. And when they brought it to me, I simply threw it into the fire and out popped the calf. <laughs> I, I, like, I could not end the message without reading this verse because it's so incredible. It's like the most pathetic lie ever. I don't know if you guys watch cops. It's like, I don't know, I've, I've watched cops for years. And it's like when the cops arrest somebody and they search their pockets and they pull out drugs and the guy's like, these are my pants. And the cop is like, what an excuse. You don't expect me to take that seriously. And God is like, like Aaron is making this incredibly ridiculous excuse. Moses, of course, knows he's lying. Here's the thing though. Aaron can't bring himself to admit that he's the cause of all the misery that's happened. He can't bring himself to admit he's the reason that all of this has happened. And you and I, are not so different. The idols in my life, they exist because I keep creating them. I keep fashioning golden calves. I keep turning back to stuff that doesn't work, things that are not Yahweh, things that have never delivered me, things that have never saved me, things that have never actually brought me happiness in the long run anyway. What is it about me that causes me to keep going back to them instead of going to the one who truly can save and deliver and rescue? The idols in my life exist because I keep creating them. I've got to stop making excuses and maybe like Moses, I've got to start crushing the things that are competing for God's glory. Now look, if your family is your idol, don't crush them. Um, that's a bad idea. But there are probably things in your life that may need to be crushed. You guys are gonna think I'm such a dork if you don't already. Uh, 10 or 15 years ago, I started looking around at my life and I realized video games had become an idol to me. 
I was spending like hours a day just murking fools online, man. It was like all I lived for every single day. And eventually I realized this is an idol. I look forward to this way more than I look forward to God. I spend more time and money on this than I do that. What brings out the worst in me? Getting a no-scope headshot. Oh, that drives me crazy. It was an idol and I had to crush it. No lie, sold my Xbox, said I'm done. And now when people are like, do you wanna play a game? I'm like, eh, cause I don't wanna go back to it. I don't want it to take over again. And there may be some things in your life that God is bringing surfacing right now and saying, hey, listen, don't let this take over. Don't let this rob my presence, my provision and my goodness from your life. Jesus, I pray that um, your spirit would speak to us and Lord, reveal the idols that we continue to have, whether they are things or people or religious in nature. I pray God that we would see them as foolish, worthless, unworthy of our affection and our resources. Lord God, help us to give it all to you because you alone truly deserve it. God, I pray that you would speak we would have ears to hear and that God, we would have the courage to respond in obedience. I ask this in your name, amen.